The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, and welcome to the next in our series of coronavirus updates. Uh, This is going to be about some modelling, some antivirals, and some scientific uncertainty. So in the last episode, I was talking about how there's clearly an awful lot of uncertainty about the numbers at the moment. There are reporting errors and delays, there are data errors, there's a lack of testing, and there's a set of parameters. We're talking about things like R0, how quickly the disease spreads. We're talking about fatality rates and hospitalisation rates. We're talking about the total number of cases we have. They all depend on each other, and we can only infer them by measuring a couple of those things badly. And this uncertainty is unfortunately an inevitable part of the imperfect information we have in this unfolding situation, and it feeds into whatever model you plug those uncertain numbers into, which means that the conclusions of the model are also uncertain. Now, there's been a lot of hype and discussion about various different models. There was, for example, we've talked about already, the Imperial College epidemiological models, and these essentially study how an idealised epidemic would be expected to spread, modelling people as moving about between various groups with various probabilities to infect others. This model was crucial in helping to influence government policy, especially here in the UK, to decide to suppress the epidemic, as it suggested that attempts to shield the most vulnerable, while keeping the rest of the population moving, would still result in the overwhelming of the healthcare system and unacceptable levels of mortality. So this has been a very influential model on policy. There are other models, like the now famous IHME model at covid19.healthdata.org, which has been designed to try and predict the date of the peak healthcare use, the peak death rate, and so on. And how they do this is they have a time series of data of reported deaths and reported cases. So in some ways, this is a more sophisticated curve-fitting exercise that tries to average across various countries and tries to account for the effects of interventions on the curve that you get. And while you, like me, might be a little bit sceptical when someone's modelling process seems to consist of, I'm going to throw this noisy and uncertain dataset into a machine learning black box model that attempts to map out curves and projections into a future we've never seen, without necessarily including a great deal of prior knowledge, that doesn't necessarily mean that the model is not useful. You just need to understand its limitations. These curve-fitting type models are probably better at assimilating new data but that means they can't be used to answer hypothetical questions, such as what if we weren't in lockdown, or what if the effectiveness of the lockdown differs across different states. And they all implicitly assume that the lockdown works the same way everywhere. And of course, they're also more vulnerable to errors in reporting or random fluctuations in the data. And in fact, uh, Carl Bergstrom, who is an uh, epidemiologist on Twitter, has pointed out for this particular model Small variations in the day-to-day data can lead to these large changes in the predicted results. Now, in normal times, if you were constructing a model and you noticed that it was incredibly sensitive to quite small day-to-day fluctuations in the data, you would probably conclude that the model wasn't very good. As it is, I don't think there's enough time to do that kind of sensitivity testing, which is probably partly why these kind of things are going on. And they are refining this model all the time, the IMHE model. But if you've seen in the newspapers, for example predictions about when the peak will be, which is this eternal question that everyone wants to know about, um, they mostly come from this model. And I think it's worth saying, 
Whatever you see from this model, do take it with a grain of salt. So the Imperial College type epidemic models are more transparent about their assumptions and you can use them to answer hypotheticals. But arguably they're less data driven because the real world data that goes into these models comes from estimates of R0 and fatality rate. Now we know that Professor Neil Ferguson, who wrote this model, originally wrote it to model a flu epidemic. And so you'll punch in R0, you'll punch in fatality rate, and you'll try and get a model that can sort of work for any different type of illness. Whereas this model the IMHE model can absorb new figures and new daily case rates from many different places and throw them into the machine learning black box and see what comes out. So you can see that there's pros and cons to both of these models. The Imperial College model is more rigid and it's less likely to update as things change. And of course, any flaws in the original model's estimates of how epidemics spread due to our limited understanding of how epidemics spread will be perpetuated in each of its versions. Now, machine learning quite often is good at capturing underlying uh, trends in data where we don't necessarily understand the physical causes of what's going on. The one thing that machine learning can't do that well is deal with making predictions outside of realms that it's already seen. Um, so in terms of using it to extrapolate things, it's a little bit difficult sometimes. It's probably clear to anyone who's listened there that I, I do actually prefer the imperial model, which you'll remember is this agent-based model that at least has uh, some accountancy for people going to home, people going to work, people going to school, uh, the probabilities of infection in each of these places, and actually runs through a full simulation of how an epidemic might spread. But once you accept that your model is wrong but useful, it makes sense to use all of these. An Imperial's model suggests that lockdown in the UK has reduced deaths by a factor of 10 compared to no measures, and the same is true in other places where this has been tried. And this is really important. Getting the numbers precisely right is actually less important. I mean, does it matter if we've saved 180,000 lives or 480,000 lives? I would contend at this early stage of the epidemic, no, it doesn't. We just need to get this under control before we can start to try and figure things like that out. And uh, the IMHE model is attempting to predict the exact date of maximum hospital overload, maximum deaths, etc. Trying to use it to give you such precise predictions, given the uncertainty, might be trusting the model too much to dictate policy compared to how we should. The more overly specific your predictions are, the more likely you are to be wrong. So everyone in the world right now wants to know how many people will die, how many will get sick, how many will need hospital treatment, when the peak will be, when life can start to return to normal, and which methods are likely to help slow down this disease. Models can give us estimates of this, and of course they're better than nothing. But treating them as certainties, and then trashing the modelers when the models turn out to be underestimates or overestimates, even in light of changing circumstances, is not the way to go here. I have a lot of sympathy for the people, especially in IMHE, who are trying to make actual, considered, sophisticated estimates here, because they're being criticised by people who told us that this was just the flu, and by people who want this to be the end of the world for their own political reasons. I find myself having the exact same arguments I've had as a climate researcher for so long, with one group of people who are convinced, without much evidence, that it's nothing to worry about, and another group of people who are convinced, without much evidence, that the world is going to end next year. Nuance, uncertainty, grey areas and so on, these things simply don't sell, not in the world of Twitter. Not, no one can be bothered to listen to them when an angry tweeter is self-satisfied, everyone else is wrong, all the experts are stupid take, tickles us right in the confirmation bias and makes us feel better about ourselves. And we're all guilty of this, me included. One of the nicest reviews I ever got for this show was that I don't talk down to the audience, and instead I assume that if you're interested enough to listen to this kind of low-budget, low-frills content, you're probably motivated enough to try and follow it. And I truly believe we don't need to talk down to people about this kind of thing. 
but we can do a public service by being honest about the realities of science and modelling. Now, there are always people who will argue that we should throw all of the models out. And then what do we do? Well, they'll say, we just create some kind of other framework for predicting things. Obviously, a good framework will use mathematics. And it had better incorporate new information from measurements and include anything we know about what we're trying to predict. And then take into account these 17 other things I thought of that might just change the prediction, all these processes that are important in determining what's going on. And oh, oh wait, it seems like we have a model again. Or of course you could just do the really scientifically rigorous thing and scrupulously observe all of the data without ever attempting the fraught game of predicting the future at all. And then maybe five to six months after the pandemic, we can tell you with 100% certainty exactly what just happened. I feel like people would be more mad if scientists did that rather than giving their best mathematically and data-informed estimates of what could happen next. So while some models may have fared badly, when you consider how well they've done compared to ad hoc reckoning and individual predictions, it's pretty good. There were some expert forecasters who were asked to estimate the number of cases in the US, and almost all of them, I think 15 out of 18, massively underestimated the number of cases that there would be, when a simple mathematical exponential model was almost dead on. So when you consider how good these models are compared to the ad hoc reckons of people who don't have models, you really have to appreciate them in a new light. Uncertainty is an intrinsic part of science. Measurements and logic can reduce it, but they cannot eliminate it. Science is not a monolith, people disagree within it, and that means that some of them must be wrong without necessarily being stupid or intellectually dishonest. In science, especially at the cutting edge of research, we're stabbing around in the dark at all times. That's the point. If we knew what was happening, it wouldn't be called research. Being wrong is inevitable. A lot of what I've told you in these shows may well turn out to be wrong, but at least I've tried to be honest about where it comes from. But when you do things in an intellectually rigorous, transparent, collaborative, data and logic-driven way, you will be less wrong than other knife-wielding assailants in the gloom. Science can also fall short of these ideals too. It's not all peaches and gravy, and none of this should really be news to anyone who's being honest with themselves here about the world we live in. And so it's in this light that I want to talk about some of the other aspects of research into COVID-19 and just express a huge concern of mine, which is seeing people pounce on every slight suggestion or preprint or preliminary study and immediately treat it as either gospel or nonsense, depending on their own political biases or their own desire to see information here. This immediate politicisation of science and research is very, very frightening indeed. And nowhere is this more obvious than in the increasingly fraught discussion about the anti-malarial drug repurposed to fight coronavirus, chloroquine, or hydroxychloroquine. I'll use those interchangeably. I know they're different drugs, but on the level we're speaking here, it doesn't really matter. So if you listen to President Trump, chloroquine is a miracle drug. He described it as one of the biggest game changers in the history of medicine. He's ordered millions of doses and even suggested that he would start taking it himself to prevent any chance of getting ill. Some who initially downplayed the virus, comparing it to flu or comparing the death rates from an early stage of an epidemic to some irrelevant statistic like the number of car crashes we have, are now pivoting towards, okay, it's serious, but we have a cure. And on the extremist end of his fan base, I'm starting to see conspiracy theorists suggesting that chloroquine is an effective treatment or cure for COVID-19, and that this is being suppressed by those experts who have a political bias against Trump and want to see this crisis getting worse. On the other hand, if you listen to the die-hard opponents to Trump, 
They are often amplifying the fact that chloroquine can cause heart arrhythmias and other nasty side effects in people who take it, and could make the problem even worse. And we're seeing similar issues start to happen with models. Already in the UK, for example, those who want the lockdown lifted are more inclined to believe modelling that suggests more people have had the coronavirus and are immune, or that the death rate is lower, and they're more inclined to accuse their opponents of exaggerating the danger, often without checking which fatality rates and assumptions the models are actually using. Now, I can't claim to be free of any kind of bias here, but I hope we should all agree that your response to a scientific study or a trial of a drug should not be influenced by politics at all. If there is a therapeutic use for chloroquine that can save lives, great, let's roll it out. But if we find that there isn't, okay, let's not waste time testing this continually, let's test other antivirals and other treatments. I see some people arguing, and Trump himself has argued, look, if you were dying of COVID, wouldn't you want chloroquine? This is a dumb framing, for obvious reasons. The pressure to prematurely buy up and use drugs which might not work is bad because it drives resources away from trying a much wider variety of things. So what do we know about this particular drug? Well, we know that it has shown some efficacy in vitro, i.e. in test tubes, against coronaviruses entering cells. But this is actually really only the first hurdle that any drug treatment or antiviral treatment has to pass to be used. Chloroquine has also done so versus flu and many other viruses, but it's not used as a treatment for them. So I would say this finding is enough to justify human trials, definitely, but not enough to say that it works. We've already talked already about how difficult it is to get antiviral drugs that work, because viruses reproduce within human cells. So the difficulty, uh, much like the difficulty in cancer treatments, as anyone who's been through chemotherapy will sadly know, is getting a treatment that can distinguish between the unhealthy cells infected with the virus and the healthy cells that live on. That's not the case with something like bacteria, where you can have antibiotics, which are chemicals in your bloodstream that just kill bacteria and mostly leave the rest of your system alone. So I've been reading Derek Lowe's blog on this. So he is a drug developer who's been doing blogs for Science magazine, and he notes not in these pieces, but in arguing with a commenter, that he actually voted against Obama twice, but would be just as angry with him for promoting an unproven therapy as the cure for a global pandemic. Again, this shouldn't influence anyone's opinion on whether he's a good scientist or not, but I think it's just worth pointing out that the accusations of political bias here really can be very badly founded. And he summarises the most recent evidence on this particular drug in these posts. Essentially, no large enough randomised controlled trial, which is the gold standard for medicine, has been conducted yet. A French doctor, Didier Rolt, who is well known uh, for his publications in biomedicine, is very enthusiastic about its use, and he suggests that the vast majority of patients treated with chloroquine get better. But since the vast majority of COVID-19 patients also get better, without a trial that has a suitable control of people who didn't take the drug, you cannot say anything about its efficacy. His first paper, which was the first one that was uh, grabbed in mid-March and used to tout this drug, is, quite frankly, as far as I can tell, littered with irregularities. So there is a quote-unquote control group who aren't given the drug, but they don't resemble the other group at all. They include several children, even though the study claims in the same paper that it's not going to look at anyone under 12. We know that typically outcomes for children are better than outcomes for adults, so the fact that the study is not even adhering to its own rules is a little bit strange. 
The control group and the group who were given the drug are from different parts of France and are therefore receiving different levels of medical care, so they're not alike at all. And perhaps most damningly of all, six patients are reported as lost from the study. Now, as I understand it from reading about this, it's not uncommon for patients to not finish a drug trial for various different reasons. Um, It could be that the patients move away, or they get bored and fatigued with the study, or they decide to withdraw. Um, And they can be reported as lost. This study only lasted two weeks, uh, so it's not really clear that there was enough time for patients to withdraw from the study naturally. And the interesting thing is that of the six patients who were reported as lost from the study, all of them received chloroquine. Now, One of them had to stop taking the drug due to severe side effects. Three stopped taking the drug because they went into intensive care. And one stopped taking the drug because they died. But they weren't counted as part of the group that was given the drug because the study wasn't completed on them. Now, bear in mind that this study only includes 24 people in each group. So, a full quarter, essentially, of the people who were taken in uh, in this initial cohort, people who were going to receive the drug, have been discounted from the study completely. One of them died, three of them went to the ICU, and one of them had severe side effects. So I don't really see how you can, in an intellectually honest way, discard such a huge part of your sample which just happened to have the most negative outcomes. If you count them as part of the group, the evidence for this small study for the effectiveness of chloroquine is very limited. Now, this doctor has got a lot of published papers. They're quite highly respected as a researcher. So it's difficult to say things like this, but it's early days. It seems like the best we can say is that this paper is very preliminary and flawed. And at worst, it looks like academic fraud, which should not have been published at all. Other studies from Brazil, where using this drug to treat coronavirus is already practically compulsory, there is a chloro-COVID-19 team who published a paper. They found that there was no change in mortality and a few instances of very severe side effects, which very much depended on the dose. Now, this may be a case where very high doses are more effective at combating the virus, but they increase the risk of side effects. And this study was really testing the uh, antiviral limits of this drug by giving people quite high doses. So it doesn't establish too much more other than that if you give people too high a dose, it's toxic, which we probably knew anyway. Um, But what you need is clearly a much larger study to be certain that it's overall beneficial to patients to do this. The team found that the side effects in the highest dose cases were bad enough that they had to stop recruiting new patients for that part of the trial because it was obviously harming them. On the plus side, there was a new and large study into hydroxychloroquine's general safety by Jennifer Lane et al., if you want to look it up. And what they did there was they went into medical data from the drug's history and its use for other diseases across many, many tens of thousands of patients. And this suggests that short-term use is probably safe, although it may interact badly with some other drugs. So what is the situation? All of the trials conducted so far are either too small to say anything for certain, or they lack control trials that would confirm the difference in patient outcomes due to this treatment. Due to the sheer volume of small-scale studies that have been published, you're easily going to be able to find papers that will back up your argument that it is or isn't an effective treatment, which is really the worst case for those who are concerned about the politicisation of science. It seems likely that the drug in the short term will be safe for most people, but the key thing here is 1% of people with 
coronavirus will go on to die. Um, if 1% of people treated with hydroxychloroquine go on to die due to side effects or have severe side effects that mean the treatment can't be used for them, then it makes you question whether you're doing more harm than good with the treatment. So you need a really huge trial to be sure of this. And these big trials of chloroquine are ongoing. We should get some better answers about this drug fairly soon. But as I think I'm sure you can agree here, it's preliminary stuff and we don't really know too much about its efficacy at the moment. Again, like everything else in this tragedy, for the sake of people's lives, I hope that it does work. I hope that the fatality rate is at the lowest end of estimates and that a big chunk of people are already immune to this. I hope that immunity is very long-lasting and that reinfection hardly ever happens. These are hopes, though, and what I know is that if you let your policies be guided by hope rather than evidence, that's a good way to get people killed. Drug discovery is fraught enough at the best of times because people stand to make a lot of money, generally, if a treatment is successful. It suffers from things like results not getting published unless they show that a drug is effective. If you run 20 studies at 95% confidence that you found an effect, you're bound to get one where it looks effective, and this might be amplified over all the others, if the other tests are even published at all. And it can also suffer from so-called p-hacking, where unscrupulous researchers choose to measure whatever makes the treatment look most effective. And in the case of drug studies, particularly for coronavirus, there's lots of different metrics you can choose to measure the success of a drug. So you could say, okay, we're going to say the length of time people spend in hospital is the important thing that we care about. Or you could say, we're going to measure the viral load on behalf of the patients and see if the amount of virus their body is producing is going down faster because of the drug. Or you could say, we're going to say the fraction of people who end up in intensive care is the metric we want. Or the fraction of people who end up dying is the metric we want. Or, I don't know, maybe it reduces fever in some people, etc, etc. So you can see already, just off the top of my head, five examples of metrics you could use. And if you fiddle around enough, eventually you might find one where you get a significant effect. That's p-hacking, and unfortunately it does happen quite a bit in some of these studies, particularly the speedily done and less scrupulous ones. So it's hard enough already, let alone in the midst of a pandemic, to determine whether the drug is going to be effective, let alone when it's already so politicised. As it is, in a few months, I wouldn't be shocked either way if it ends up being effective in some cases, or having very little effect at all. The same goes for many of the other treatments under trial, I'm talking about remdesivir and uh, and the other antivirals that have been uh, suggested as use for treatment of coronavirus. The only exception is actually blood plasma from recovered patients, um, which I think is very likely to help. There's lots of evidence that it did so for SARS. It's been used preliminary and very effectively in places in China. That's likely to help, but obviously it's very difficult to scale it up to massive deployment. And of course, we know why that works, because if you have antibodies in your blood plasma that specifically combat this virus, we know that those kind of things are going to be capable of combating the virus in a way that a drug originally developed to treat malaria or originally used for HIV AIDS or any other uh, antiviral drug is perhaps less likely to be successful. So I think when it comes to treatment, for the worst cases, it would be great if we could get more testing done and find out who has and hasn't had the virus already, and if there could be a big drive for blood plasma donations from people who have recovered from the virus. Um, this could help to save some lives in the worst cases, but it's uh, it's very difficult to do that logistically. And other than that, drug trials for antivirals should definitely continue as long as they're shown to be safe in people. And hopefully we will find something that can help in certain cases. But you really can't hold your breath with this. There are very few 
viruses, possibly with the exception of malaria, where we've really found antivirals that are extremely effective against them. So uh, those are my thoughts on modelling and antivirals. There's a couple more episodes from this long rant of recent stuff. Uh, The next one's going to be on the exit strategy, and I'll probably have that with you tomorrow or at the weekend. Okay, until next time, take care.